Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, 2 Samuel chapters 19 and 20. A lot to cover today. We're going to move along at a pretty good rate. But shortly I'm going to get onto a little detour. One of our infamous detours for a few minutes to make a point that some may appreciate, but others might not. Uh, so please bear with me. Um, and as we resume our study, David is returning from his rather short stay in Machanaim, across the Jordan River. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. Well, Absalom's rebellion is over. A peace treaty has been struck. A re-coronation ceremony at Gilgal to reinstall David as king of Israel has just occurred. And now David is meeting a whole cast of characters on his journey home that he had also met on his way out of town as he was fleeing for his life just a few weeks earlier. Now among the first to greet him was the aged Shimei, a Benjamite, who threw himself on David's mercy, hoping that since it was a Middle Eastern tradition that a newly crowned king often granted pardons for the offenses of his subjects, that he would be the recipient of one of those get-out-of-jail-free cards. And although one of David's commanders, Abishai, wanted to go and do away with Shimei on the spot, the ever-political David did the expected, and he granted Shimei pardon, at least for a time. Shimei brought 1,000 of his tribesmen with him to greet David, undoubtedly had something to do with David's decision. Now, we read an excerpt from 1 Kings chapter 2 that shows that how on his deathbed the still bitter David instructed his son Solomon to execute Shimei for his cursing of David years after it had happened and as a dutiful son Solomon followed through. Then Mephibosheth Saul's lame grandson also appeared and he hailed David. Let's pick up our story from there. So turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 19 and we're going to read from verse 25 uh, until the end. That's going to be page two, uh, 356 rather if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Mephibosheth the son of Saul came down to meet the king and he hadn't cared for his legs, trimmed his beard or washed his clothes from the day the king had left until the day he had come home in peace. And when he came to Yerushalayim to meet the king, the king said to him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord king, my servant deceived me. I, your servant, had said, I will saddle a donkey for myself to ride on and go with the king since your servant is lame. But he slandered me, your servant, to my lord the king. However, my lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever seems right to you. 
For all my father's household deserved death at the hand of my lord the king. Nevertheless, you placed your servant with those who eat at your own table. I deserve nothing more. Why should I come crying any more to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more about these matters of yours? I I say you, Ziba, divide the land. And Mephishet said to the king, Indeed, let him take it all. For me it's enough that my lord the king has come home in peace. Barzillai the Giladi had come down from Roglim and passed on to the uh, passed uh, on to the Yarden, the Jordan, with the king to bring him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was very old, eighty years old. He had provided for the king's needs when he was staying at Machanaim, for he was a wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come on across with me, and I will provide for your needs with me in Jerusalem. And Barzillai said to the king, How much longer can I live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am now 80 years old. Can I tell good from bad? Can your servant even taste what he eats or drinks? Can I hear the voices of men and women singing anymore? Why should your servant burden my lord the king your servant only wants to cross the Jordan with the king why should the king reward this so generously please just let your servant go back and die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother here here's your servant Kimam let him cross with my lord the king do for him whatever seems good to you the king answered Kimam will cross with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. Whatever you ask of me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and the king crossed too, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. Then he returned to his home, and the king crossed over to Gilgal, and Kimham crossed with him, and all the people of Judah brought the king across, as did half the people of Israel. Now all the men of Israel came to the king and said to him, Why have our kinsmen, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household across the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king's our close relative. Why are you angry about this? Have we eaten anything at the king's expense? Has any gift been given to us? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. Also, we have more right in David than you. So why do you despise us? Weren't we the first to suggest bringing our king back? But the men of Judah spoke more vehemently than the men of Israel. A few verses earlier, we learned that Ziva, the calculating and sneaky the state steward that theoretically worked on behalf of his master, Mephibosheth, greeted David as he was literally crossing the waters of the Jordan River. Ziba brought with him, and think about this, 15 sons and 20 of his own personal servants. Thus we see that Ziva had arranged things such that the weak and insecure Mephibosheth had utterly no control over his own steward. The idea, of course, was for him to be noticed and remembered as a man who had remained loyal to King David at a time of national emergency. 
And this was in hopes of currying the king's favor. Besides, as far as David was concerned, Siva was now the master of King Saul's former estate and thus an uh, an influential aristocrat. Well, verse 25 explains that the crippled Mephibosheth hadn't cared for his legs, trimmed his beard, or washed his garments since the day the king had fled. Now, this was a traditional expression of mourning. But when David saw him, the first question out of his mouth was, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? Now, I explained in our last lesson that this event of David returning to Jerusalem to resume his reign is either a very good analogy of when Messiah Yeshua returns in his second coming or it is actually and intentionally prophetic of that event. There's varying views on this. Some scholars don't see any relationship whatsoever. But my opinion is that this is probably prophecy. And last week, I used one of several elements of David's return from exile to explain a well-known New Testament prophecy that otherwise is little more than a throwaway statement of dubious value. It's a statement that says that when Yeshua returns, it will be as lightning that travels from the east to the west. And I'll remind you that lightning is not at all restricted to travel from the east to the west. And only randomly travels in any direction in particular. And by the way, the ancients fully knew that. It's my conviction that this New Testament prophecy is being fulfilled after the pattern of David's return to reassume his kingship. David's second coming, if you would in which David is traveling from the east in the Transjordan to the west, to Jerusalem on the west bank of the Jordan River. Now, I see a similar pattern in Zipha and Mephibosheth's relationship with King David, as in Yeshua's relationship with his own brethren, the Hebrew people, and with the eventual involvement of his uh, uh, with with the Gentile church. Okay, we're gonna, let's talk about that little detour now. Let's first recall just who Mephibosheth and Siva are. Mephibosheth is a crippled Hebrew man who was a grandson of King Saul, David's friend Jonathan's son. He was in hiding when David initially took the throne because it was feared that King David would do what many kings typically do when they win the crown. They eliminate all the former king's family. But David had such respect for King Saul, such love for Jonathan, that he sent from Mephibosheth, decided to care for him as he would a direct royal family member. Now, Siva was a Gentile who had been left in charge of Saul's considerable estate after King Saul, his sons, 
and then most of his closest relatives were killed in battle with the Philistines. After Saul's death, his sole remaining son, Ishbosheth, became king for a short time, but he too was then killed, thus ending the tribe of Benjamin's claim to the throne of Israel. So essentially, this Gentile estate steward, Ziva, suddenly found himself in not just as an employee in charge of this considerable royal state, but there was no one in authority over him. I mean, he just won the lottery, or so he thought. Well, when David brought Mephibosheth back from hiding, he gave Saul's old estate to him. After all, it was part of his family. And he told Ziva that Mephibosheth was now the master. Needless to say, this didn't sit too well with the Gentile Ziva, and he apparently began plotting how to make Mephibosheth irrelevant and once more enjoy the stature that he had stumbled into after Ishbosheth's death. Absalom's rebellion and David's temporary absence from the throne offered Ziva just the opportunity he needed to climb over Mephibosheth and back to the top of that ladder. Now recall that as David was walking towards the the Mount of Olives as he was fleeing Jerusalem, Ziva came to him with some donkeys loaded with food and wine as a parting gift. David asked Ziva why his master didn't come on such a somber occasion. And his answer was that not only did Mephibosheth just not see the need to come, but that Mephibosheth considered this to be a happy day because now the throne would go back to the tribe of Benjamin, Mephibosheth's own tribe. Well, the angered and insulted David told Ziva, okay, all that Mephibosheth formerly owned now belongs to you. Well, some weeks or months have passed. Absalom's rebellion's been put down. And now here stands Mephibosheth as David is returning home to the throne and David confronts Mephibosheth for not showing loyalty by following him. Mephibosheth says that he intended to. But Ziva had deceived him. Mephibosheth was actually in the process of saddling a donkey to come and accompany the king into exile, but since he was lame, he wasn't able to be quick enough about it. In the meantime, Ziva observed Mephibosheth's intent, essentially stole Mephibosheth's goods and some of his donkeys, and then he presented them to King David as a gift from himself and then lied about it all. Lied about Mephibosheth to the king. The result was that the Gentile Ziva became master of the estate at 
David's unjust order. Something that had always been meant for the Hebrew Mephibosheth. Well, as we look back over the centuries, we see that this is quite an accurate pattern of what happened with Yeshua and his countrymen and how Gentiles came to dominate the church even though Messiah always made it clear that first and foremost he came to deliver his own people who were to be the masters of the estate. Romans 1.16 For I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is into the power of God and to salvation that everyone believeth but to the Jew first then to the Greek. And that in fact the inclusion of Gentiles, the Greek into the redemption process had everything to do with saving the Hebrews also called Israel. Romans 11, 25-27 For brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed but now He's revealed. So, you won't imagine you know more than you think you do. It is that stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness. And that it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. And as the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what happened was this. Yeshua, the anointed king, came to his people, the Hebrews, and many accepted him as Messiah. But most did not. And as time went by, more and more Jews which by Jesus' day was a standard label for all the Hebrews, even though it wasn't technically correct, they started accepting Yeshua as the Messiah until the New Testament tells us there were thousands upon thousands of Jewish believers. But then something happened. As the Gospel was now taken to the Gentiles, particularly by Paul, Gentiles not only started believing in droves, they also began to outnumber the Hebrews who believed in Yeshua. After all, the sheer number of Gentiles in existence in that era was at least a hundred times greater than the total number of Hebrews. So it naturally follows that in no time at all, matter of fact, in less than a century, After Messiah's death, the number of Gentile believers had overwhelmed the number of Jewish believers and so the Gentiles simply brushed aside any opposition and gained absolute control of what we now call the church. Well, By the early part of the 2nd century AD, the Gentile bishops who now ran the institutional church decided that Jewish believers needed to stop being so Jewish. They needed to stop being so Jewish in their observances and instead adopt the ways of the Gentiles to let go of such things as the Sabbath, the biblical feasts, and more if they were going to worship Jesus. 
Now most of you have heard since Sunday school of the so-called early church fathers. Usually, the first church father is said to be either Ignatius or Clement. And there were several others who both overlapped and then followed them. But there is one interesting common feature about the early church fathers. All of them were Gentiles. Isn't it interesting that in Christian parlance, the first father of the church was a Gentile, as were all subsequent to him. Does it now make sense as to why Jews see Christianity as a Gentile religion? It was characterized by Gentiles in that way since around 100 A.D., Never mind that the Bible points to James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the likely first recognized leader of the church, or that the Hebrew Paul ought to figure in that mix somewhere, or that Peter is called by the Catholics the first pope. But since about 100 A.D., the church wasn't even considered the church until it was a thoroughly Gentile religious institution. The Gentile church had ignored Paul's warning of Romans 11. For brothers, I want you to understand this truth which God formerly concealed, but now He's revealed that you won't imagine more than you actually do. And we determined that despite the Scriptures clearly saying otherwise, that they, we, we, now had more right to the Hebrew estate than did the Hebrews. And then the early church leaders cleverly began libeling the Jews as bloodthirsty Christ killers. Openly stated that Jews ought to have no part in worshiping the Jewish Messiah. Christ was now the Gentile Messiah who belonged to the Gentile church. Naturally, this erected an impenetrable wall through which the Jews couldn't pass. Of course, the Roman-based church conveniently forgot that although some of the self-serving Jewish leadership in Pontius Pilate's day had been happy and eager to see Yeshua executed, it was the Gentile Romans who condemned him, who mercilessly whipped him until he didn't look human anymore then killed him. It was the Gentile Roman soldiers that nailed him to that hideous Roman death stake. It was the Gentile Roman soldier that pierced Christ's side with a Roman spear to ensure that he was dead. And this is his Jewish followers helplessly looked on, lame and in despair. Look at the obvious parallels from 2 Samuel 19 and this prophecy just jumps off the pages. Mephibosheth was the rightful Hebrew owner of the Israelite estate, part of the kingdom of God. And the anointed king, this case David, came to rescue him, to restore him. But the Gentile Ziva, who was graciously given the right to fully partake and benefit 
of the Jewish estate under the terms of Jewish covenant law wasn't satisfied of that role. He plotted and he planned and he lied to the king by saying that the Jewish Mephibosheth wanted no part of the anointed king anymore. He'd given his loyalty to somebody else. Ziva coveted being master of the estate. He wanted exclusive favor of the anointed king. And so to accomplish that, he built up this elaborate web of lies and distortions about the rightful Hebrew estate owner and in doing so was able to wrest control of the estate away from him. Now, a Gentile felt that he owned it. You know, my soul aches, truly, as I tell you the story and this prophecy and how it became fulfilled. Even though God foreknew all this was going to happen, and he factored it into his plans of redemption and used it. It's a sad and gut-wrenching truth that the Gentile part of the church has stolen away the estate of the Jews. We've claimed it for ourselves exclusively. Said so the Jews have no part in it. And we declare to one another that the Jews want no part in it. And then the anointed heavenly kings threw with them anyway. What difference does it make? We manufactured a complete role reversal. The true master of the estate had become lame, set aside. The partaker became the master. At least in the eyes of the master. Now the king returns. The Gentile estate steward runs ahead of the rightful Jewish owner to greet the king. The Jewish estate owner's dispirited, lame. He can't hurry. He was damaged in life. And like the crippled man in the New Testament who went to the pool of Bethsaida to wait by the water in hopes it would stir, that he could crawl into it and be restored, but the crowds always beat him to it. And thus, there was never room for him. Now I know that most of you who are listening are aware of a growing thirst among the Jewish people to receive their inheritance and their anointed king, even if they don't know who he is. But the church has for centuries told them that the estate inheritance is no longer theirs. And thus the returning king is for us, the new masters, not for the lame and the dispossessed. Sadly, the vast bulk of folks on both sides have come to accept this deception as God ordained them the truth. We of Christ's church have become Ziva. And we need to repent from this. And we need to do all we can to undo this man-made doctrine we've established and preached to ourselves and foisted upon the Jewish people. And we need to return the estate to the rightful owner. When David originally brought Mephibosheth 
before him and gave him the estate. It was an estate that Mephibosheth didn't realize he already had legal right to. It was just the king restoring it to him. Okay. The Jewish people owned the estate inheritance because God set it up for them, beginning with Abraham. And we, the church, need to make them aware of it. We need to equip them to handle this task. And then we need to assume our proper roles, not as masters, but as lawful and grateful partakers along with them in the estate. Just as Paul explains it. You know, I am so proud of this ministry and all who helped to establish the Seed of Abraham Messianic Worship Center in Israel. A facility paid for mostly by the generosity of Gentile believers but for the benefit of the Jewish people. A place in Israel where the Bible, a product of the Hebrews, will be taught by a believing Hebrew in the Hebrew language. In a Hebrew context, within the Hebrew culture, where we hope that this teaching will lead these modern day Hebrews to their Hebrew Messiah. What a thing. This one small step towards true restoration of God's chosen to their estate inheritance. And I suppose a measure of repentance and maybe even reparation on our part. We owe this. We owe more than we can ever repay to the Jewish people through whom the word of God was given to mankind but who had their estate and their spiritual inheritance torn from them and misappropriated to the point that most of them don't even know what was for them in the first place. Well, fortunately, even though David is called a type or a foreshadow of Messiah, he's not Messiah. Because David proceeded to do an unwise and unjust thing. The truth that came from Mephibosheth's mouth that revealed the obvious fraud that Ziba had committed still wasn't sufficient for David to admit he had been wrong in his earlier ruling that had stripped poor lame Mephibosheth of his estate and had given it to the arrogant and undeserving Ziba. So David adjudicated the matter by declaring it unsolvable. Defied the estate equally between yourselves. As though there was no way of determining who was victim and who was perpetrator. I have little doubt that the infamous story of Solomon dividing the baby between the two women each claiming the infant as their own, was born from what his father did when faced with this similar case. And as what the one woman who was the real mother did when she understood that if the baby was indeed divided, it was going to be destroyed in the process, she loved that child so much, she gave it up to the other woman 
who lied about being the mother to save its life. Then so does Mephibosheth do the same by saying that his main concern is for the anointed king to be back on his throne over a united kingdom of God. So rather than divide up the estate, Ziba should go ahead and take it and take it all for his own. What mattered to Mephibosheth was his personal relationship with the anointed king. And that the king be on his throne. What mattered to Siva were all the trappings, the status, the earthly benefits of controlling the estate no matter how he had acquired it. Well, the chapter continues now. And we're finally presented a brighter picture in the form of Barzillai the Gileadite who came from his place in the Transjordan to help escort the king across the river. And he wanted nothing of the king, only to see him back on his throne. He was an old man of 80 years old, wealthy and content. Of course, in typical oriental manner, David wanted to reward Barzillai for his ordinary Uh, extraordinary loyalty and generosity but even the mere suggestion of it seemed almost painful for this good man he basically says he's so old he can't taste fine food anymore he's nearly deaf he'd just be a useless burden so it's rather pointless to treat him to the lavish lifestyle of the palace when he can't enjoy it anyway thus he suggests that David take Kimam and add him to the royal court. Now who Kimam is, we don't know. Probably he was family to Barzillai, but that's just speculation. But the etiquette of the time dictated that Barzillai find some way to accept the king's gracious offer. Well, in verse 41, David is ferried back across the Jordan near Gilgal with a huge entourage of well-wishers and those trying to get back into his good graces. And we're told that all the people of Judah and half the people of Israel cross with him. Now this, is a, this has a very loose meaning. First of all, the people are the clan leaders and the aristocrats, not the general population. Second, all just means that everybody who was anybody from the tribe of Judah came. But only some of the leaders from the ten northern tribes, here called Israel, showed up. Now the reason for this disparity is simple. Although some from the south had joined Absalom's rebellion, the north was considerably more excited to be a part of it. On the other hand, they had never been as committed to having David as their king as Judah had been. And so when David returned, he didn't invite the leaders of the ten tribes to take part in the ceremonial procession. Now the Israelites, since Egypt, had allied themselves into groups, according to tribes, and once they entered the land of Canaan, those groups became even more defined and entrenched into Judah and Simeon in the south versus all the remaining tribes in the north, generally north of Jerusalem. Now Benjamin, which was kind of a buffer state between the the northern and the southern 
territories vacillated back and forth between alliances with the North and the South as the political winds changed direction. But at the time of Absalom's rebellion, Benjamin was mostly invested with the North because they were still bitter over kingship transferring from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's old tribe, to the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. Thus we get to the final few verses of this chapter and we see a very serious quarrel break out between Judah and the Northern Tribal Alliance. Because Israel had not been asked to take part in the ceremonies, they felt slighted. When both David and the tribe of Judah behaved as though the ten tribes were of little importance to them. And really, can can anybody blame David for not inviting those guys to the ceremony? So when the parties arrived at Gilgal for the big to-do, there broke out a fierce contention between the northern and the southern factions over what Israel saw as unbridled royal favoritism towards Judah. Israel's argument was that they should be treated with great regard since they had ten parts in David. With the implication that Judah was the lesser because they only had two parts. And of course the ten parts meant that the ten tribes should have more sway as a political party than the two tribes. But Judah countered that it was natural that they should have been invited in mass to the ceremonies and have David's ear because they, after all, were David's flesh and blood family. Israel reminded Judah that they had made known their wish to see David return as king before Judah did. So what's family got to do with anything? But the men of Judah wouldn't back down. They just got louder and more insulting and they're arguing. And So the only possible result was trouble. Let's move on to chapter 20. Second Samuel chapter 20. There happened to be there a scoundrel whose name was Sheva, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he sounded the shofar and said, We have no share in David, no inheritance in the son of uh, Jesse. So Israel, every man do his tent. And all the men of Israel left off following David and went after Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah stuck with their king from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Well, when David arrived at his palace in Jerusalem, the king took the ten women who were, under, who were his concubines, whom he had left to care for the palace, and put them under guard. He provided for their needs, but he never slept with them again. They were kept in confinement until the day of their death, living like widows with their husbands still alive. And the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to come, come to me within three days and you be here too. And Amasa went to summon the men of Judah but took longer than the time he had been given. And David said to Abishai, Sheba the son of Bichri is going to do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he won't take over fortified cities and escape us. With him went Joab's men, the Kareti, the Peliti, and the experienced soldiers. They left Jerusalem in pursuit of Sheva, the son of Bikri. 
And on arrival at the big rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. And Joab was wearing his battle clothes over which he had girded a belt with a sheathed sword. But as he came forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it going well with you, my brother? And then with his right hand, Joab took Amasa by the beard to kiss him. Amasa took no notice of the sword in Joab's hand. So Joab stabbed him in the groin. His insides poured out onto the ground. He died without being stabbed a second time. Joab and Abishai, his brother, continued in pursuit of Sheba, the son of Bikri. One of Joab's young men standing by Joab said, Whoever is on Joab's side, whoever is for David, let him uh, follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, so that as the troops came by, they all halted there. And when the man saw that all the people were standing still, he, he dragged Amasa off the road into a field and threw a cloak over him. And once he had been removed from the road, all the troops went on after Joab to pursue pursue Sheva, the son of Bichri. Sheva went through all the tribes of Israel, to Avel and Beit Macha, and to all the Berim. They assembled and followed him. Joab's troops came and put them under siege in Avel of Beit Macha. They put up a ramp in the moat against the city wall and all the people with Joab battered the wall in order to bring it down. And then a wise woman in the city shouted, Listen, listen! Please tell Joab, come over here so I can speak with you. And he approached her and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. She said to him, Listen to what your servant has to say. He answered, I'm listening. Then she said, In the old days... They used to say they will ask advice at Abel. That would end the discussion. We are among those in Israel who are peaceful and faithful. Why are you destroying a city and a mother in Israel? Why swallow up the inheritance of Adonai? And Joab answered, Heaven forbid! Heaven forbid that I should swallow or destroy anything. That's not how it is. Rather, a man from the hills of Ephraim, Shavah the son of Bikri, he's raised his hand against the king, against David. Just turn him over to me, I'll leave the city. And the woman said to Joab, All right, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And then the woman went to all the people with her wise plan, and they cut off the head of Shavah the son of Bikri and threw it out to Joab. So he sounded the shofar, and they left the city sending each man to his tent, while Joab returned to the king in Jerusalem. Once again, Joab was the commander over the whole army of Israel, while Benaniah, the son of uh, Yehoiada, was over the Kriti and the Peliti. Adoram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, the son of Achalud, was secretary of state. Sheva was recorder. Sadok and Eviatar were priests. And Irah the Yairi was David's priest. Now this chapter, we won't spend long with this today, this chapter is usually called Sheba's Revolt. But I contend that revolt or rebellion is much too strong of a term for what actually happened. As much as Sheba wanted a civil war, it never actually materialized. 
there were certainly heightened tensions, a great deal of threats, the movement of militias, no doubt some bloodshed, but it seems that the Northern Alliance wasn't all that eager to follow Sheba into another war, one that wasn't very likely to succeed. See, this was more of a dramatic and allowed dissent by the ten northern tribes than a rebellion, but it did serve to show just how fragile the union of tribes that David was attempting to govern actually was at that time. Well, verse 1 explains that there was a scoundrel named Sheba who started the trouble. There is referring to Gilgal. Right? As there really shouldn't be a division at this point between chapters 19 and 20. One just flows into the next. The term being translated into English as scoundrel is a familiar one. Ish Belial. Ish Belial means man of worthlessness. However, that even that misses the full impact. The accusation is usually reserved for those considered the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. Shiva, not surprisingly, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now remember Shimei, who had boldly cursed David some weeks earlier. He was also a Benjamite. So we ought to get the picture by now that David wasn't very popular with the tribe of Benjamin. And of course, that all had to do with King Saul losing out to David. So Sheva sounded the shofar, meaning he called the northern tribes to war and declared, we have no share in David. Recall that only a couple of verses earlier, the northern tribes, northern tribes claimed ten shares in David. But now we have a defiant reversal. And Sheva declares they have no share in David, meaning he's not going to be their king. Not surprisingly, we're told that the men of Judah stuck with David. Now we're also told that all the men of Israel left the meeting. That is, they stormed off in a major huff. All right, resentful, deeply offended by the words spoken by the leaders in Judah. You know, in the Oriental world, harsh words can start conflicts as easily as can violent acts. Well, verse 3 has David arriving back at Jerusalem and it seems that one of the first things he addressed was this matter of his ten dishonored concubines. And we find David's attitude towards them similar to what he had displayed towards his wife, Saul's daughter, Michal. Recall that David married Michal and then Saul got paranoid and took Michal away from him and gave her to another man and then David came back and he was able to regain her again. Because, and, but, but once he got her back, he put her away, likely never slept with her again because we're informed she had no children until the day she died. And here we see David do essentially the same thing with these poor concubines. What was their crime? No doubt they were forced, to one degree or another, to have sex with Absalom. And while it would probably be too far to call it rape, this can't be something they consented to. But in this era, these women, these ten concubines, were part of a harem. 
David's royal harem. And when a new king was enthroned, he inherited, literally inherited, the harem of the former king and thus all the conjugal rights. However, by Absalom taking each of these ten concubines into a tent that had been placed on the roof of the palace of this, in the city of David, more or less publicly humiliating them sexually, this was not the normal act of a man inheriting a harem, but it was of a son rebelliously trying to displace his father and demonstrating for everybody to see his declaration of power and authority. Now there's a variety of opinions. We'll end with this. There's a variety of opinions as to why David thought to leave these ten concubines behind when he had fled before Absalom arrived. I mean, in retrospect, this is a rather foolish, if not uncaring act. I mean, what did he think was going to happen to him? David's response to this sad result is that he put them away. And although he cared for their basic needs, he had nothing further to do with them. They're compared in the scriptures to living widows. That is, their husband's not dead, but he might as well be. They were confined to the palace for the rest of their lives and denied sexual relations so that they all died childless. While that seems sad and pretty unfair to us moderns, it was an immeasurable tragedy for Hebrew women in that age because it was the deepest held of convictions that the primary purpose of being a woman was to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant by being fruitful and multiplying. To bear no children was not merely sad. It was shameful. It was the greatest dishonor.